I'd like to read today from the scriptures. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he delivered over the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he was saying. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 18, 31 through 34. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I am really glad to be with all of you this morning. We have some friends from all the way from South Africa this morning. Welcome. Glad that you're here. And this will be an African sermon today. In Africa, the sermons go on like for two hours because people walk there, and they, if they want to get as much sermon out of how much they've walked, right, <laughs> sometimes. So, no, I, it's not that bad, but I'm going to be going all over the Bible. And I, I'm tired today. I was up late. I have a new staff member, AI pastor. We were arguing about theology to like 2 in the morning, but I won. Amen. Amen. I beat Google Bard, too, apologetically. And everything's been fact-checked that I'm going to talk about today. Um, but there's hope maybe we can reason with them, witness to them, whatever these things are. Anyways, um, what did I just read to you in Luke 18? What did I just read to you? Prophecy. prophecy. Thank you, Barry. It's on the <laughs> I don't know if you can read prophecy. It's up there, right? It was prophecy. Um, Jesus predicting his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and what is that, his death, burial, and resurrection? The gospel. Amen? Right? It, it, it's, it's the gospel. So what is prophecy? Here's kind of a biblical definition. Prophecy is a, a divinely inspired act of speaking forth God's message, often revealing his will for the present and providing insight into the future. It's, it's not just about predicting events, but more about conveying God's heart and his intention and guidance to his people. And, and what exactly is the gospel or, or the good news? I've actually fought with pastors sometimes, you know, trying to define what the gospel is, but, but Paul defines it. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as a first important once I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's the gospel, friends. Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. That God loved us enough to die for us, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven and receive eternal life. And and the proof of this truth, of, of, of Jesus rising from the dead, is in the scriptures. The scriptures all predicted it. The gospel is the central theme of the entire Bible. The Bible itself is a remarkable tapestry of faith 
and history comprising 66 books written by 40 authors from diverse backgrounds, shepherds, kings, fishermen, religious scholars across three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it was written over about a 1,500-year period of time in three languages, in, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And it blends all those literary genres from poetry to prophecy and historical accounts and letters. And it all blends it into one theme. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing work. And, and, and despite its diverse authorship, uh, you know, it, provi- it provides this unified message about God's love for us and hope to redeem us through Jesus Christ. You know, what, what Jesus just prophesied to his disciples is foreshadowed throughout the entire book and throughout all of Scripture by all those many authors. And, and how could... Multiple people over 1,500 years living in different parts of the world create such a unified theme if it's not divinely inspired. So what do we believe about the Bible at Crossroads? We believe the Bible is a collection of 66 books that is absolute truth and God's final authority. We believe both the New Testament and the Old Testament are inerrant, verbally inspired, and infallible word of God. Inspired through the Holy Spirit. We accept the Bible as our manual for living, or we talk a lot about we share the gospel. It's God's design for our lives. I, I remember when I first got my Bible and I started reading it because my life was so messed up. I was like, oh, there was a manual. There was an instruction manual <laughs> to how life worked, but nobody gave it to me until I was in my almost 30s. It's an amazing book. And, and, and Jesus, he viewed the Old Testament in the same way, often saying things like, it is written, or, or, or pointing out how prophecies were, refer, re, were fulfilled through him. You know, the, the first five books of the Bible were, were, were penned by Moses and are affirmed by Jesus in John 5, 46, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The gospel was first revealed by Moses in Genesis 3.15. When humanity fell into sin, the scripture says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The, the, the scholars call this the Proto-Evangelium which I'm not great with Latin, but that's as close as we're going to get. Coined, you know, means by the theologians, first gospel. The first time the gospel shows up in the scripture. In the the, the four gospels, Jesus refers to the prophets 18 times saying, it is written, and, and 14 times either alludes or directly quotes the scriptures. Uh, I'm saying 14 times alludes to it or then he directly quotes the scriptures at least 40 times. That's 72 instances where Jesus invokes the scripture, using them to defeat Satan. That's what he's used to defeat Satan with, and to preach his gospel. Now contrast that with, with critics today who argue that the Old Testament is unreliable and, and merely allegorical. Yet the Old Testament itself 
asserts in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and not, will not fulfill it? To say the Bible is an allegory is to say that Jesus is a liar. And yet many churches in our town and, and across America right now are, are really saying that about the scriptures. That's why this message is important. It's what Chad GBT was trying to say to me last night. Well, you know, religious texts aren't reliable. And I basically got to, into a corner with history saying, well, if we throw out what we know is empirically true of history, and you know, compared to the New Testament and stuff, we throw out all the other authorship and everything that's going on, then what do we know about history and archaeology and science? And it's kind of like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like all of Western thought goes away. I know that sounds like a bold claim, but, but it's true if you'll research it. So is the gospel we preach here truth or fiction? I'd argue that the proof is in the prophecy, not in the pudding. Although I like pudding a lot. I enjoy a good pudding, especially South African pudding. They, they do some good puddings there, okay? <laughs> but it's prophecy... Uh, but his prophecy um, confirms Jesus' truth or, 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 the, or the good news. And, and prophecy has really captivated me this week. Uh, I, 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 and always, really. But um, please, right now, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to listen to this scripture. And I want you to think about it as this Old Testament or New Testament. He was despised and he was rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as one from whom... Men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Friends, who is that referring to? It isn't, shh, shh, thanks, I'm glad you know your Bible. It's in Isaiah, but it's referring to Jesus, isn't that? Okay. Old or New Testament? Thank you. <laughs> Very, I'm glad you're with it. No, I'm not, no, you're fine. <laughs> I knew that would happen. Um, because you guys know your Bible, and that's great. Um, when was it written? Something B.C. Yeah, they want to claim it's B.C.E., but it's B.C., right before Christ, our calendar goes. But, but right, it, 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 it's six or seven hundred years, depending on their scholars, before Jesus was crucified, that that was penned. That's prophecy. Okay, I want you to listen to another one. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving, saving me? The words of my groaning, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried like a pot shard, and my, my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Who is that referring to? Jesus. Is that Old or New Testament? Old. 
Old Testament. It sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? Psalm 22, right? That, that, that's New Testament or Old Testament. When was that written? During David's reign? When was that? Apprentice pastor? <laughs> Something to <you> say. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm just messing with you. A, a thousand years. I wouldn't have known that without looking it up, right? A thousand years. Okay, a thousand years. I, don't, I can't have every fact in your head, right? A thousand years in your a thousand years before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That was written down. That's prophecy. Today, many of Bible critics argue that Jesus merely arranged his life to fulfill those prophecies. And, and, and that could be right. That could be right like with, you know, coming into town on a donkey. I mean, you could arrange uh, coming in on a donkey. But how, how, how do you control the place of your birth? Right? How, how do you do that? You know, uh, but it was predicted in Micah 5.2. And it happened, not that it was birth, birth in his hometown, because, you know, this governor... Quirinius called the tax, and, and so his family had to go there. And so he was born in Bethlehem, which is the scriptures predicted. More, moreover, how, how could Jesus orchestrate the details of his torture and his death, which at that time were under Roman control, even though God ordained it. They were under Roman control. Yet Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 offer a very strikingly accurate prediction that aligns with the gospel accounts perfectly and even Jesus's own prophecy we read earlier you know some modern scholars have claimed that Isaiah 53 was altered by the early church to align it with the New Testament so well and then that theory was debunked with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls between 1947 and 1956 see that scroll was dated about 100 to 125 B.C., before Christ walked on the earth as a man. And, you know, it, 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 it lines perfectly with the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, you know, that we have now. It, it lines perfectly, that, that one that was pri- pri- prior to Jesus' coming, proving that Isaiah's words were not altered to fit cr- the Christian narrative. It, you know, they, they read that passage around Israel, and people go, oh, that's, that, that's New Testament. That, that's about Jesus. Go, go walk around, just read that passage and say, who, who said this? People would say, oh, that's, that's Jesus. That's New, New Testament. Now, some Jewish scholars argue that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 refers to the Hebrew nation, not, not to Christ. And, and there may be kind of a dual prophecy at play. Um, but... It, 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 is, it is pointing to Christ. And, and, and here's some reasons why. The, the, the example of crucifixion that was practiced here was Roman crucifixion. A crucifixion was not even invented in that way until you know, um, hundreds of years after Isaiah. And the Persians had crucifixion, but it was not the same as Roman crucifixion. This, this fits with it. You know, um, uh, one, one example is he was humiliated publicly and Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed. 
and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth, with, which fits with the scriptures. Furthermore, Isaiah 53 says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And, and we know that's about Joseph of Arimathea that, that provide a, a, a tomb for Jesus. And it also fits with Jesus being crucified with, between two thieves and then buried in that tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. And they, all these details are cooperated by all of the Gospels. But they're also corroborated by first century historians like Flavius Josephus and, and Tactus, um, very important people in terms of us understanding the ancient world, and, 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 and there are some others. So, so why do skeptics still doubt? Well, let's revisit today's passage in Luke 18 and examine the prophetic evidence presented there. And, 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 and he, he said, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The number 12 holds special significance here, symbolizing completeness and fullness. It's, it's a, not just a nod to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's, that's something that's woven into the fabric of our faith. Consider the 12 stones that the high priest wore on their breastplate, or the 12 pillars uh, set up at Mount Sinai, and um, even in the New Testament, there were 12 baskets left over after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and, and that's kind of foreshadowed by the loaves of showbread uh, on the tabernacle table for worship, which symbolized God's complete provision in Christ Jesus. You know, the next, the destination is Jerusalem. Now, Daniel prophesied in Daniel 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and, re and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with square and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, that was written about 530 to 535 BC. This prophecy acts like a, a divine timer that goes off according to, to Jewish tradition, a day can symbolize a year, making it 532 years until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's so perfect how that fits. Is that coincidence, friends? Or is that divine orchestration? Zechariah 9.9 also foretells this journey to Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then there's Psalm 118.26 and, and Micah 4.17 that further prophesy the events of, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the, the city of peace, a, a place where... That's what it's called, a, a place where the nations will learn God's ways of bringing peace to us, mankind. In, in Matthew 24, 1 through 2, Jesus predicts the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. You know, the disciples are impressed by the building of the temple, and they're commenting on to Jesus. And Jesus said it would be torn down, and, and they could not believe it. You know, Jewish, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus um, says some of these stones in the temple were 40 feet long and 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. And so they, they can't imagine this thing being torn down. 
And the temple was destroyed, history tells us, in AD 70. And, and Jesus used the temple as prophecy of his gospel. In John, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up. And the, 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 the Jews hearing this thought he was speaking of the literal temple in Jerusalem, which had taken 46 years for them to rebuild. However, John clarifies that Jesus was speaking about the temple as his body. Jesus will become our new temple, the, the center of our, our faith. Our salvation is not found in a place, but friends, it is found in him. So what is to be accomplished in, in Jerusalem? Everything prophesied about the Son of Man. And that word accomplished echoes Jesus' final words on the cross. It is finished, or teleo in the Greek, that signifies the complete payment for our sin. And that our salvation is secure in him. The, the price of our sin, friends, is paid in full. And if God has paid in full, you don't have to keep paying it. The bill's paid. Salvation requires only our faith in what Jesus has accomplished or, or done for us. Now this title, Son of Man, isn't merely an acknowledgement of his humanity. It's a divine claim. And it comes from Daniel 7, um, 13 and 14, confirming his title, identifying Jesus as both God and Messiah. And then Jesus reveals exactly what will happen to him in Jerusalem. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked, and, and he will be shamefully treated, and he will be spit upon. Jesus was handed over to the Romans, fulfilling the Gentile part of his prophecy from earlier. And that's corroborated by Tacitus, my Latin's not good, Tacitus and Josephus and the four Gospels. He was flogged by the Romans, receiving 39 lashes with a flagrum, which was a whip embedded with bones and pieces of metal to rip his flesh to hamburger. And, 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 and he was actually hit by two guards so they wouldn't wear out. They, they could put maximum suffering on him. And they hit him on different sides of his body as not to kill him, but just to create more pain. So it wasn't just all on his back. They hit him in other areas. A crown of thorn was placed on his head and his face was covered at one point and they struck him. They punched him repeatedly. Does this all align with Isaiah's 53 prophecy? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This isn't saying that Jesus wasn't George Clooney or, you know, some attractive man. You know, sometimes it's looked at that way. It's just, no, it, I, I believe this is a prophecy describing his, his appearance after the brutal beating and scourging that he went through. In his time with the disciples, I believe Jesus was a joyful guy. After all, in Psalm 116, affirms this. It says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are, are pleasures 
forevermore. I mean, sinners wanted to be around this guy. They, they wanted to be around Jesus because his presence was inviting and accepting unless you were filled with self-righteousness and pride and jealousy like those that orchestrated his death. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 the show The Chosen, I love the Jesus there because he's a joyful guy. He's a joyful guy. And God is the most joyful being in the universe. This text uses um, the word delivered, which in, in, in the Greek is kind of the same idea as being betrayed. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by a friend, a, a fellow Jew, someone part of his own ministry, his treasurer, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. And, and Jesus is prophesying that right here. He, he was despised and he was rejected by us, the, the very people he came to save. And, and, and after flogging him, Jesus said in Luke 18, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Once again, Jesus predicts his treatment by the Romans. It was the Romans, not the Jew, that, that had legal jurisdiction to carry out capital punishment. And while it was the, his own people, the Jewish leaders that wanted Jesus executed, they lacked the authority under the Roman rule. And so they brought the innocent Jesus to Punctius Pilate, a, a Roman governor, accusing him of crimes that would warrant his death, like blasphemy or, or sedition against Roman law. Claiming to be king and a threat to Caesar. Jesus had proved his identity through his kindness and his miracles to his own people and the Gentiles. Isaiah prophesied this about the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man leaps like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. And Micah prophesied about this, about him. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The miracles of Jesus reveal his identity. But it's ignored by his own people who daily read the scriptures. And Isaiah also prophesied the type of people Jesus would go to. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and open the prison of those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus stands up in his hometown to say this, to his people. He reads the scroll of Isaiah and then he looks at him and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was stating right there that Isaiah prophesied about him and his ministry to the world. In Jesus' prophecies, he, he, he foretells to his own people that they will be the ones to end his life in Jerusalem. And, and notably, he doesn't say that he will be found guilty of any crime, only that he will be killed, as we says in Matthew, or Luke 18. He will be killed. He'll be killed by a Gentile, Punctius Pilate, uh, uh, you know, who gave the order, a, a figure confirmed as a true historical figure by archaeology. And, and Punctius Pilate declared Jesus innocent. 
Yet for political expediency, he gave the, the Jewish leaders a, a choice to free Jesus or release a known insurrectionist and murderer, Barabbas. And this decision foreshadows the, the profound event that happens on the cross where Jesus, the innocent one, is sacrificed for our sins, allowing us, the sinners, to go free like Barabbas. And this is a manifestation, a declaration of God's boundless love for us. And and Isaiah had prophesied this in in chapter 53, stating, Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He sees, uh, yet he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hands. Now the word will in the beginning of that, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, is translated in the Hebrew to pleasure. It was God's divine pleasure to offer his own son as a sacrifice for my sin and your sin. God, please God, to let his son die that we might live. Do you you get that? And, and, And throughout scripture, animal sacrifices were offered in the temple served as a religious rite to, to, to cleanse the stain of sin. However, these sacrifices were just all of them. Every animal killed was merely a foreshadowing or prophecy of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus was make. As Hebrews 9.22 clearly states, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Even Lord's Supper, we... Practice today is a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. All the law and the prophets not only foreshadow, but directly point to Jesus' death on the cross. And, and Jesus himself declared, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew five seventeen. In essence, he is announcing that he is the fulfillment of the entire word of God. The, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, friends, is all about him, and his gospel can be found everywhere. Consider the point of story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac uh, Abraham takes his son Isaac to Mount Moriah. By the way, that was the Temple Mount, Moriah, but that's where the Temple Mount is, to offer him as a sacrifice, foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice Jesus would make. And here's Isaac, a, a young man who willingly goes to be sacrificed by a father. He wasn't a, a, a boy. This is a young, young man, maybe a teen, that has the strength to run away. But he willingly goes to be sacrificed. He even carries the wood on his back for the sacrifice, just as Jesus would later carry his own cross. But in a divine twist, God intervenes and provides a ram caught in a thicket as sacrifice, sparing Isaac. And this prefigures the moment when John the Baptist, fulfilling his role prophesied by Malachi, announces Jesus as that same lamb, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 36. The blood of animals in the Old Testament was merely a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice Jesus would make. Hebrews 10, 4 states unequivocally, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They will be taken away by Jesus. And this echoes the truth prophesied 
by David, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise, Psalm 51, 16, and 70. God himself paid the blood sacrifice for our sin, and he, he is pleased or, or satisfied by our faith in him alone. Our sin has been paid for. Jesus promised that he would accomplish that. And and for those who believe today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? And if the Son of God sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen? Amen? Friends, the proof is not in the pudding. It's in the prophecy. Thanks, Jerry. (laughs) But look at what Luke, our narrator, says next. And this is compelling to me. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Who's they? Jesus' top guys. His apostles. The ones whom he had spent 24-7 with for three years. The note in my Bible, the heading on it says, Jesus foretells his death now the third time. Three times in each of the synoptic gospels, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, Jesus states his gospel, and they don't get it. Oh, yes, there's a shining moment where Jesus declares, uh, or where Peter declares Jesus as Messiah or the Christ of God in, in Matthew 6. Jesus then also goes forward and produce, or gives prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection, or the gospel. And Peter rebukes God, saying, this will never happen to you, bro. I didn't say bro, but, you know, it, he, he, and, 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 and then we make him pope because we misunderstand Jesus' words about Peter And Jesus said to Peter to affirm him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. It was a statement that was important. Not Peter. Not that Peter's unimportant. Father God himself made Peter prophesy and declare about his son. Through the Holy Spirit. Peter is an instrument of God. But then Jesus has to rebuke his friend Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And even though God has been proclaiming his gospel all along, man has not got it yet. Including Peter, Jesus' best bro. Skeptics say that Jesus faked his own death, burial, and resurrection, which is ridiculous if you understand what crucifixion is. He he did that just so people would think he was the Messiah. Or the other story is the disciples faked it, and that's also ridiculous. No one, including the disciples, accepted or believed in a suffering Messiah. They just didn't believe it. The Jews, which the disciples were, believed in a Messiah who was a conquering king. 
who had fulfilled their agenda to destroy their enemy, the Romans. The Jews did not believe in a suffering Messiah. And that's why after Jesus was captured, the disciples ran like little girls and hid. Except for Peter, who stood up and betrayed him, lying to a little girl when he was asked whether he knew Jesus. The dudes did not even come to the empty tomb on Sunday morning. It took the love of the women who also didn't believe in his gospel because they were coming there to prepare a corpse. Even after Peter discovers the empty tomb, he did not believe the women, Mary Magdalene, who told him what the angel had said. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and then on the third day rise. Friends, what is that? The gospel too, right? Again, prophecy and the gospel. Then in Luke 24, 5 and 7, the, the dudes go right to the tomb. They see the tomb empty and they still don't believe. It's not until Jesus appears to some of them resurrected and explains to a couple dudes on the way to uh, Emmaus, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the, all the scriptures to him concerning himself. That would have been an amazing Bible study, friends. I would love to, I, I would love to be in that Bible study, Right? Friends, the proof is in the prophecy. If his top dudes who were with him for 24-7 and three years full-time did not believe, how do you expect you will believe unto your salvation if you just come to church for an hour a week? A couple Sundays a week or a month because the average person in this country is going one time a month. How are you going to believe if the disciples with 24-7 did not believe. And if you don't read the scriptures yourself during the week, it's critical for the Holy Spirit to speak to you that you, that you per persevere in faith. I believe in eternal security, but we have to persevere in the faith, in his word. The beloved, the proof that God loves you and has saved you is not whatever in whatever pudding in this life you are trying to satisfy yourself with. It is in the prophecy, the word of God, about his son in the gospel. And it's not, friends, in, in the prophecy about the end of the world. Friends, it is in the gospel. People get all wrapped up in speculation about end time prophecies, which distracts them from Jesus' gospel. Although the opening prayer in the book of Revelation talks about Jesus because it's about to revel be a revelation of Jesus. And he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Friends, what is that? The gospel. It's the gospel. Friends, if you don't believe that, that, that Jesus lived a perfect life and he died on a cross for your sins and rose on the third day, you're going to hell. The proof of that is also in the prophecy. 
Today, friends, believe by faith in the Son of God who loved you and he gave his life for you. Friends, the proof of that today is in the prophecy, not in how you feel. Friends, there are skeptics who say there's no evidence for the Bible to be true. Friends, I want to say again, the proof of the Bible being true is in the prophecy. There was a university professor, a chair of mathematics, uh, the chair of the mathematics department who wrote a book called Science Speak. His name was Peter Stoner, and it delves in the astonishing science of probability to examine the likelihood of prophecies coming true. And according to Stoner, the odds of uh, any person fulfilling just eight of the biblical prophecies mentioned in the Bible are one to the 17th power. That's a one followed by 17 zeros. It's a huge number. Now, now let's put that staggering number into perspective. Imagine we take that many silver dollars, 10 to the 17th of them, and spread them across the state of Texas. We have some people from Texas today. Spread those across the state of Texas. It's a long way to get down there, right? It's, it's a long, to drive across it can take a day. It's a, it's a big place. And, and these coins, if you did that, one of the 17th power of these coins, it would, it would uh, uh, cover every inch of the state a layer two feet thick. Two feet thick, all of Texas. Now, that's just one of those, eight, I mean, that's, that's just eight prophecies, right? And then the mathematical odds of it all being fulfilled in one man is like throwing a, a, a silver dollar out of an airplane and taking a blind man or a man blindfolded and have him walk into the middle of Texas and just pick up one. That's the mathematical odds we're talking about, right? Eight prophecies. Today, I've shared with you at least 30 Old Testament prophecies that were filled fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his burial, and, and his resurrections. Experts say there are around 300 such prophecies about Jesus. But wait, there's more. Give me more. There's more. <laughs> Stoner did not stop at just eight. He considered 48 of them. 48 prophecies. I gave you 30. There's over 300. At least 30 I gave you today. There, there's... And you know what he found? 48 prophecies. The odds of one person fulfilling all 48 prophecies are astronomical. One to the 10 to the 57th power. A one with 157 zeros behind it. To give you some perspective on how big that number is, the number of electrons in the known universe is around 10 to the 79th. It's double. And just 48 prophecies of the amount of electrons in our universe. Friends, the proof is in the prophecy. Today, will you believe what Jesus prophesied about himself through the Bible? A Bible written by 40 authors from diverse languages across three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, over a period of time of about 1,500 years. In three languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. These prophecies foreshadow something so perfect and, and so accurate. Friends, the proof is in the prophecy that the Son of God loved you and that he gave his life for you. He did this to free you from your sin and to give you everlasting life. Will you believe the proof of that today? Or will you hold on to your doubts and your religion? If you're still in doubt, I want you to pray right now. 
It's just like Peter. You need the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you. Pray right now because the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth to reveal the truth to your heart right now, who Jesus is. Take away the lies that he is God in the flesh and, and, and what he has done in his love for you by paying your price, his, the price of your sin on the cross. <laughs> Holy Spirit, help them to believe. God revealed the truth about Jesus to doubters like Peter. Peter was a doubter. And, 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 and through the Holy Spirit, he can, he can reveal that to you too. Today, friends, repent. Turn from your doubts. Climb out of your brokenness and believe in the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. Know the forgiveness of your sin. Let him take away all of your guilt and all of your shame. And and allow him to give you by grace the gift of everlasting life. You can have that right now. You can have that today. The proof of that is in the prophecy that I just revealed to you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you. We don't have to throw out our minds to believe in you. This is the most logical thing in the universe to believe in what you have done for us. You've spoken it to us in a love letter throughout the ages. And Father, I pray that there's people today that are throwing away their doubts, that they're turning to you by faith, turning away from their sin, that they're medicating themselves with, and turning to you and believing in what you've done for them, that they have been loved since before the foundations of this earth, and you have come to redeem them, and that you have come to save them. Father, let them turn from their sin right now, admitting their sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Reveal it to them that they are sinners in need of your grace. And Father, I pray that, Father, right now you would reveal to them your goodness, that you have loved them. And you still love them, even in the midst of their sin. That God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, I pray, they're into Revelation, that they realize that time may be short. We never know whether it's the end of the world or the end of our lives, Lord, when you're coming. And so to convict their hearts right now, that now is the time. Right now is the time to, to leave their doubts behind and to believe on the Lord Jesus. And go tell the world what is true. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that the Father has loved us always. Father, I pray that that love catches up with somebody today. As David says, surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. And Lord, I know you're following people here, pursuing them like a little puppy. Father, may they turn around and grab hold of that puppy of love from you, Lord. Turn from their sin and grab onto you. Father, do a mighty work today. And I pray that in Jesus' name.